Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the GLP Report podcast. Uh, we have a very special guest on the show today. It's uh, Imagineer Jim Shaw. Um, Jim has been working on so many projects for Your Disney and Disneyland Paris over the years. Um, he's got a 33-year career with uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. He's worked on uh, really amazing projects, and we're going to discuss all of them uh, in the next hour and 15 minutes, uh, from the Old Mill to Casey Jr. to the Aladdin Passage, um, and the overall uh, feel of the park. Uh, we'll also discuss him uh, creating Toon Studio at the Walt Disney Studio Park and uh, Toy Story Playland. He's also the designer for Rock and Roller Coaster in Florida and in Paris, so we're going to be discussing that also towards the end of the broadcast. Um, and we'll talk about the future, as he's had a, a say in Cars Road Trip, which is opening uh, later this year, and uh, even Avengers Campus. So on with the show. Uh, I'm just going to mention quickly, we have a little bit of audio interference around minute four or five, but it's only a few seconds. So if you just power through it, the rest of it is uh, perfect. So... Um, Let's go. Um, here's um, our special interview with uh, Imagineer Jim Shaw. So we're very happy today to have a special guest on the show. And you might have uh, seen his tweets around, uh, on, on Twitter for the past uh, couple months, which have been extremely interesting for us fans. Uh, all the tweets about the creation of your Disney, about Walt Disney Studios and everything. It is uh, Jim Shaw. Hello. Greetings, bonjour. And um, I also have with me Jeff from DLP Town Square, as usual, uh, as a co-host. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Um, so, Jim, um, you, um, you did you join Twitter recently or did you get back on Twitter? Um, because you've been sharing a lot of super uh, interesting information. Well, I've been on Twitter a member of Twitter for some time, but my schedule has been such that I wasn't able to contribute very much. Uh, one of the unfortunate or good benefits, depending upon your viewpoint of COVID, has been that it's given me a lot more time. And uh, so as a result, I've been pretty active in the Twitter community is fantastic. I, I love the responses that I get to my posts. And it's uh, it's been a lot of fun and I continue to look forward to contributing several times a week some yeah, photographs and, and memories and i think i think what's been uh, what's been great is that you know as fans we we're so used to scouting the internet for any photo especially of the construction of the resort of creation of the lands of the attractions and you've been able to bring in some yeah. fresh contents because we let's face it we kind of go around in circle after a while especially on this older uh, content from, from, you know, early 90s or even early 2000. And so it's been great to see, um, to see new things. Um, and I think it's, so the, the main project that you were involved with was the creation of your Disney. Um, when, um, when did you start on the project? How did it all get started for you? Have you been, uh, were you working for, for Disney before your Disney? Uh, yes, actually, I did. The, the very first prop, I, I did work on Euro Disney, but let me give you some background. Uh, before working as a cast member for 33 years at WDI, Walt Disney Imagineering, I was first and foremost a Disney fan. Um, and so my family always would go down to Disneyland in Anaheim, which is an hour drive. And we would enjoy the park, and I would buy a fun map, which... Um, we published for Euro Disneyland, their version, but I 
had mine for Anaheim and I'd take them home, put them over my bed in, in my bedroom and study them. And from that grew an interest that I never dropped with Disney and Disneyland and themed environments and theme parks. So I built models. I worked in animation. I was one day given a call by a friend and colleague who worked at WDI in Glendale asking if I was interested. And I thought, well, this will be an interesting interview. Uh, and it turned into 33 years worth of work at WDI and in a variety of roles that took me across the, well, took me across the entire globe. I worked on every single park uh, for the last 33 and a half years. Amazing. Um, and so, um, so you were you were obviously asked to to work on on your Disney. Um, how uh, looking? You know, obviously we're 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 just fans. We haven't sadly crossed over into Imagineering. Um, <laughs> and looking from the outside, it did look that back in the day, um, creatives were a lot freer. That there was a lot more um, options and possibilities. These days, it always feels like the creation process is always very controlled, but um, how, what was it like to work on, on, on those projects back in the, in the late eighties? They have to answer to different masters. There's a financial consideration, a schedule consideration, most importantly, the story consideration, because what I find is the company is very supportive of strong and good and unique ideas. So in the case of Euro Disneyland, I had just come off a project in Anaheim, and I thought, oh, this is great. I've got nothing to do. When Tim Delaney, who was the show producer and creative director for Euro Disneyland's Discoveryland, knocked on my door and said, would you be interested in working on a project? It turned out to be part of the capacity program for Euro Disneyland. And on that basis, I worked on five projects for the additional capacity program. And four of them actually got built. And that took me about three years. And it was a, a great a great experience, frankly. One of the greatest of my life. Plus, I made tremendous friends and had great colleagues in France and uh, in order to achieve and deliver those projects. That's amazing. Um, but I, but I, I will share one story. It was cold. That's the one thing I look at and I remember. <laughs> because for some reason, parks are always open finished in the coldest possible months and I would hold my brushes when I was painting the walls of the queue for the Caribbean I would hold my brushes against the arc lamp in order to warm the paints in order for the paint to hold the walls it was cold that must be quite different from working in California <laughs> um does you also shared uh, you also shared a photo of Discoveryland, which I think has captured the attention of a lot of fans. I know our, our colleague, Richie, wanted to know. There were stairs. So before Space Mountain was built, obviously the land was set up much differently. And you, you tweeted a photo of some massive stairs that were just going next to Orbitron and I think into Videopolis. Can you tell us more about those stairs? Were they supposed to be permanent? Were they, um, were they removed at the last minute? What, what were their purpose? You know, it, I'm, again, kind of an outsider on this one, so the best authority would be Tim Delaney. But I remember ta talking to Tim and talking to Tony Baxter. One of the concepts was explored early on for Discoveryland was to have a large, well, a large dome, which would be Discovery Mountain, 
and actually have that operate as a mall, as a center point uh, and a covered condition space that people could come and walk through to go to other attractions within Discoveryland. In order to do that, you'd have these elevated walkways that were covered conditioned that would take you to Videopolis or to Starters or to other attractions in the future. So in that regard, those are those stairs are a remnant of that concept. And when they were built, uh, it was quickly evaluated that they actually were not working the way they're supposed to because they blocked the view uh, at the Orbitron looking back towards Star Wars. You couldn't see Star Wars or Star Tours looking back because the stairs blocked their view. Right. I was I was just looking at the I've actually got a picture that picture up right now and. I remember there's all sorts of concept arts around with the where now is a radio studio, I think, that was going through to what was then Discovery Mountain. What I found quite interesting is that the planter that those the, the stair structures are actually on is still there. It's the the one that Wally and Eve are on at the moment, which is quite mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, it's a good example that in the process of design, we go through many, many steps. It starts with the sketch on a piece of paper. Uh, but then it evolves into doing a physical model and you do the physical model, but you really don't know what it looks like until you start to get into construction. Now, the changes once you're in the construction phase are very small, but they do occur and that staircase is one example. Do you think, is this something that still happens today or or are the concepts like validated more uh, more times before construction nowadays? It still happens today. It, you really can't avoid it. Another example in uh, Adventureland in ADL were the domes because the domes were placed, the domes are placed today in a position that they were not intended to be placed. The model had them placed in a different way, but there was a decision afterward, after the domes were constructed, to re rearrange them. You know, they're not there are things you could actually bring a crane in and pick up and move like you would a chess piece. And those are the domes of the entrance. So like the sort of Arabian Nights looking domes of the entrance. Yeah, they're the, yeah, the Arabian oh, Nights, the bizarre yeah. domes. They got moved. They got ah. moved during construction. How interesting. <laughs> they weren't intended, but that's what happens. And again, you do make these discoveries, uh, but you really try to avoid them if, if at all possible. And also, as a creative designer, you're really only allowed a couple of those uh, changes, late-term changes, uh, because management takes a very dim view of impacting schedule and spending money. Of course. Mm-hmm. Always always the accounting department. Uh, <laughs> so, so the park opened in 92, and um, a few years later, a number of new attractions opened. And so... Uh, this is what you refer to as the additional capacity program. Um, was this something that was always planned? Um, how was how was this um, uh, thought through at the opening of the park? So they opened the park, but they had those attractions on reserve? Uh, the attractions on reserve were a different set, and I worked on them. There was the Little Mermaid ride, uh, and you can see some of my artwork on the Little Mermaid DVD that was released some years ago. Or oh, we have, we have posted those. Yeah, we have seen um, those. <laughs> and then the second, well, great, good. I'm glad someone did because it was it was a lot of fun. That one, that ride actually went quite far over in 
a facility. It was used as a mock-up space, and there was a lot of mock-up work done to prove a concept of how you could take a type ride vehicle and appear to go underneath the ocean. So you had ripples and lying effects. You could go below that plane, and it would convince you now you had entered the undersea world of aerial. And it was incredibly effective. Uh, but that is an example of how far that project went. The other project was a Beauty and the Beast theater, which had, I'd say, kind of a hyper version of the Tiki Room. Mm. Uh, and those, although I didn't work on that, so I can't speak as I can't speak as well about that one. Um, however, both of those projects were paused shortly after the opening of Euro Disneyland because even though there were controversies as far as the opening of Euro Disneyland, it was very popular, and so there was not enough capacity for guests to do things in the park. So additional capacity program essentially was to add 10,000 uh, 10, guests per hour capacity to the park. And the way we did that was to create 10 new ride shows or attractions to meet that demand. And out of that came the additional capacity program. And as I said earlier in the broadcast, I worked on five of them, four of them that got built. So what what was the, the four that you um, that, that got built? Uh, let's see, what are the four? Uh, the old mill Ferris wheel. Mm-hmm. There was Casey Jr., the storybook canal boats, and the land walkthrough. Uh, the Bonjour Mickey or Meet Mickey was the one that got very far, but was canceled. And then eventually they took over the uh, Fantasyland Theater and created Meet Mickey uh, decades later, I guess, because now we have a Meet mm-hmm. Mickey in the Fantasyland Theater under the train station. Yeah. Um, we love, I think Paris is is one of the best park when it comes to walkthrough attraction and You've worked on the Passage au Chanté d'Aladin. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what the concept was, what the idea, and, and what you created and painted for this attraction? Well, okay, that passage was part of an overall... Well, I'll, I'll kind of back up for a moment. Remember, Euro Disneyland was designed predominantly by Southern Californians. And as we have today, as I'm talking to you, we have 60-degree Fahrenheit day with sunny skies, and if you live with that environment for decades, you assume everyone in the world lives in that environment. And so as a result, when Euro Disneyland was designed, it was designed by Californians to have a covered walkway going from the ticket booth, ticket plaza, all the way back through the different lands, terminating back near Peter Pan. So people could be undercover away from the elements, away from the, the rain all the way through the park. What we discovered as Californians was that people who live in France prepare for weather. And so unless it's a real tempest, they don't mind going out into light rain, like, you know, inclement weather. They don't mind that. And so parts of the arcade really were abandoned and not used. And the part of the arcade that I inherited was the one that became the Aladdin walkthrough. So there was the Aladdin walkthrough. Well, the, the concept started to fit the available space. And we did a lot of construction within the, the bazaar uh, to accommodate the ideas. But I started basically with doing 
sketches, looking at the movie, meeting with the producers and directors of the movie Aladdin, uh, going to the art library in Glendale and in Burbank to get reference materials, uh, then going back and looking at the film multiple times, taking screenshots and scaling the figures and then drawing scenes to tell the story of Aladdin. Now, one thing I really wanted to do is here in Anaheim, we have on Main Street uh, picture, picture windows where they'll do little vignettes and physical dimensional scenes of different movies. And so I wanted to take that and scale it way up and put a lot of budget behind it. So as a result, animation, more figures and more larger figures, such as the snake, which I think is two meters tall. It's been a few decades, so I, memory serves. But I mm. think it's two meters tall, which is an example of how big things got. And we treated the figure sculpting as we would a dark ride. So we treat it with a lot of sincerity and did as good a job as we possibly could. And I'm very proud of that one as a result. Was that at the same time, or was it, or maybe this came slightly afterwards, that the, the other passageways in the bazaar that became the, the restaurant, the Agrabah Cafe? Was that a similar time, or was this before that? Uh, I think it was about the similar time. It, again, it was the same issue, that you really didn't need a covered condition cube dedicated only to walkways mm-hmm. through that section. Uh, and so they started to cut it up and divide it up into other means and uses. The arcade at the front of the park through main street was still used and i believe still used today yeah yeah and they're looking to expand that as well with the they're expanding it sort of outwards aren't they with the the um the barbershop right the barbershop is moving into the arcades i mean we don't know when but it was part of the plan (laughs) oh (laughs) yeah so they, it's going to it's going to be behind from what i understand from the plans right from it's going to be behind the diorama in liberty arcade um but they're keeping the diorama but it, it's not exactly clear i don't think exactly yeah. how it's all fitting in together yeah well the diorama was a beautiful piece of show work so i hope they keep it yeah yeah they said they said they are hopefully that's still the case good and I think the the arcade in particular is such a unique feature to Paris that a lot of um, a lot of fans from the other parks envy us. So we, at least out of this whole covered walkway, you know, maybe they haven't they didn't realize the entire vision, but we got some beautiful spaces out of it, and they are so useful when it's raining, when it's cold, when Main Street is busy with a parade, you can zip through. Um, I think it's a great were. way to get out the park as well, because everyone sort of walks down the middle of Main Street when they're watching the, you know, the shows in the Central Plaza. Yeah. You just zip down the arcades and you're out. Um, yeah, and and also they had the gas lights in the arcade, which, you know, again, there's just very romantic uh, and very just it's just a great environment to walk through. Mm-hmm. I would spend time there just to, for no reason other than it was there. It's really great that the the gaslights. I think is it's amazing that they are still here and maintained and working today because it really feels to me like a show element that would be easily, you know, replaced over the years because it's too difficult to maintain. But no, they're they're still here and they even give the arcade that smell because you know the gas lamp smell. It gives like a specific um, atmosphere. I think. Yeah, and they've done quite a lot of relighting in there, so it, it definitely feels like they're here for the long haul. Um, 
So in Fantasyland, the old mill uh, has had quite a roller coaster of a story. <laughs> so <laughs> I did not realize that it opened as a snack location, and then the um, the wheel got added, and then got removed. What was the idea behind the wheel? Was it was it something that was planned, or is it something that you know the creators went back later and were like, well, where can we add capacity? And saw the old mill and decided that putting a wheel would add some capacity yeah the old mill as you said was a snack location in fantasy land and it drew people back there but not as many people as they might have wanted uh, and so when i was a, a tasked with looking for rides ride locations i thought that i would well actually i was inspired by the the mickey or the see the disney short the old mill which i think was the silly symphonies mm-hmm short from disney and i was inspired by that and i thought well if you're going to have a windmill what would they use the energy for and so by putting a small mini or family ferris wheel on the back side of the mill in my little mind i thought well the wind is turning the blades the blades are creating energy they transmit the energy back to this wheel that has buckets on it that pick up the water from the stream below and we and suddenly voila you had a ride and it was i think it was a lovely ride but it got removed i think yeah. because uh, it was causing too many cues is that i don't actually know what was removed it, it didn't have that it had a very small capacity it, it, it here's a note i'll make is a lot of time we talk about preferred capacity and preferred demand and so something like the ferris wheel was probably too good for that location because it's big, it's iconic, uh, it's very attractive to small children because it has a small thrill element to them, but not thrilling that would discourage them from riding. However, you have to balance that against the fact that it doesn't carry that many people per hour. So as a result, the parks only found that they had a lot of lines for a ride that didn't carry a lot of people. And so families would complain, say, well, I waited for an hour for something that's a short ride. My family, my child loved it, but it wasn't worth it. So for a while, they used that Ferris wheel as uh, a place for decor during the holiday season. I remember where mm. I was tasked at doing some design to put in holiday wrapped pa- packages into the buckets. So they'd run the wheel, but as a, as a holiday overlay. Uh, and eventually, you know, guests again would walk up and say, well, that looks like a ride. Why can't I ride that? And the solution was just to decommission it as a ride. So it's a sad, sad story. But, you know, you live and learn. Yeah, that's too I, bad. I really, I really a, enjoyed it. Lovely. Yeah. yeah, it was such a lovely little attraction. Yeah, you, um, could, you could see across pretty much the whole resort. I remember you could definitely see across to Newport Bay Club. Really? Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. remember that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a weak spot for I have a weak spot for observation towers. I I did one for Toy Story Land as well, uh, but again, I, I would I'm convinced had that been a larger wheel with more capacity, it would still be running today. Um, and so looking looking beyond the old mill, we have Casey Jr. and uh, Pay de Condefet, which um, you know from running a, a fan account is one of uh, the most beloved, I think, area for many guests. It's a, uh, it's, it's it has so many little elements. Uh, Pay de Condefe 
is just beautiful with all the little scenes. In some ways, it is a bit similar, a completely different theme, um, as the Passage de la Dame, where, where you have all those sort of snapshots of all the movies. Um, did you work on the scenes? And, and how... Um, how how was it decided which uh, you know which which movie was going to be represented because there's Wizard of Oz in there which is not necessarily something you'd expect from a Disney park. Well, the Wizard of Oz is there because when I, well when I worked on the design for that and laid it out, um, I thought well let's do a fairy tale for each of the more recent classic Disney stories, mm. uh, but they start to represent every country. Uh, every Western country, but the United States. And so I, the Wizard of Oz just seemed like a natural fit for that. It was complementary to the other stories, even though it wasn't strictly a Disney movie. Although, again, I could kind of argue and walk that back by saying Disney has done a Wizard of Oz sequel to the book movie. Mm-hmm. So I could kind of argue myself into thinking, well, yeah, that you know, Wizard of Oz does belong there if you're going to be a strict, strict about saying it's got to be Disney or can't be there. Yeah, and, and but, you got you got to build more Aladdin with the enormous. Um, oh, that's incredible. That is. is it a is it a tiger? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's that a, you that you tiger. that you float through any entire cave, uh, which is beautiful. Yeah, it, it's a cave of wonders, and it, it, part of this, you know, early on you asked the question about how much freedom we have. And, and the answer is really, we have a ridiculous amount of freedom. I'm always surprised when I'm in a construction site looking at something that I designed because ultimately there are many people who have given me a lot of money and a lot of responsibility and they're following what I'm doing. But as a fan, I draw from my experience as a fan and love of Disney to do all the work that I've done. Cave of Wonders is an example because in Anaheim, you have storybook land, but you go through a whale and out the other side and inside the whale, there's no sea. Mm. And I thought, mm. well, we can make that better. We can have a little vignette in there. Well, once you do that, then you think, well, everything else has to, has to have a little vignette as well. And so that led to what you see today. And as far as the cost aspect, the difference between Anaheim's version of storybook and France's, this, France does not have a ride operator on board. We did not have a narration on board of the boat, and that was a cost saving. We have a cable drive ride system that powers the boats through the course, which overall is a cost saving because you don't have a number of boats, each which has its own individual motor. You have one motor tied to a cable, which is tied to each boat, which pull the, the boats through. And so, thinking that way, I can save a little bit money, a little bit of money on the ride system, and then take that little bit of money and start to buy more show for the guest, or for me as a designer. Um, <laughs> I think so. It's it's always that little bit of balance between the two, and it's there's a lot of negotiation between the project manager and the the show designer. It's got one of my favorite scenes, actually, probably in the resort. I, I really enjoy it. I'm a big Fantasia fan. So having the Chatterbox yeah. scene in there is, is really cool to see, actually. I'm, uh, I always enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's great to hear because it was, you know, sometimes when I design, I think 
I hope somebody other than me likes this. <laughs> no, I think plenty of amazing bits. Peter and the Wolf as well is such a nice thing to include. I, that the music is iconic. Well, it's good. the music I remember from growing up actually, and um, and I think it's great to see you know stories that are not particularly well represented in the rest of the park because you know you don't see those stories anywhere else. Um, yeah, and, and we, yeah, we were, you know, you're, to your point about music, we relied a lot on music because we didn't have dialogue. We didn't have a ride operator on the boat to tell you what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. We have to kind of tug at the emotional cord of the guest having heard the music or just being involved and, you know, pulled into the story by the music. So music in that ride played a big, big part. Is this is this a constant in Paris that um, creatives always have to think about the international aspect? Where in the U.S. it's pretty clear, even in Japan, it's pretty clear that everyone kind of speaks the same language, and you know visitors just will speak English. But in Paris, is it is it is always something that's on on your mind? Not only French and English, but also having different cues, either music, visual, for guests who may not even speak French or English. Uh, the language aspect. I think not so much. I think the cultural aspect, we should have thought about that more. You know, going back to the usage of the arcades as an example, the the meal menus were another example. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times the lesson, the number one lesson learned for me working on Euro Disneyland was culture matters, how guests use the park matters a lot and will be wildly different. A guest, even Orlando and Anaheim, will use the same ride differently than the other would use it. So when you get out into Shanghai or Hong Kong or Tokyo, even though they may have Western influence or Western exposure, doesn't mean they're going to look at that ride show or attraction the way a Westerner would look at it. So you have to be very much aware. And as we move into the next decade and two decades, I think future Disney projects are going to have to be very much more aware of diversity and cultural differences than we have in the past. And in in Europe, it's such a huge mix of culture because someone from Germany will have such different habits than someone from Spain or from the UK. Uh, So I can imagine like, what it must be like trying to manage all this, even even today with, with the current management of the park, it's always kind of a um, a huge project to make all those nationalities enjoy the park in their own way. Yeah, and you, you see that actually in the in the character debate as well, don't you? Because Germany, for instance, they they love Donald probably more than they do Mickey. It's always yeah. quite interesting to see those little. And the French love Stitch these days, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and Net- <laughs> Netherlands always loved Donald, and they loved uh, Uncle Scrooge. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Netherlands, they love Scrooge. Um, so also um, around Pays de Condefait is Casey Jr., which is another actually really lovely little ride uh, that even adults enjoy. I enjoy going there. Was it um, – what was the goal with this attraction? Was it to add a little bit of thrill for maybe kids who are, like, still young but want to experience, you know, their first roller coaster? Uh, yes, and also I was trying to do something which was to add a powered coaster to the Disney repertoire. Uh, Casey Jr. is the only first and only powered coaster in any Disney park. 
I'd hoped that it wouldn't have been so, but we, there we are. Um, the, really, this, the reason there's a Casey Jr. is because there's a storybook canal boat. The canal boats take a certain amount of level, certain amount of property. And so think of the canal boats as being floor one. And so there's all of this air space above floor one, which I could occupy by putting Casey Jr. up there. So once you're on that ride, you have the light thrill of the powered coaster, but you also have the ability to look down into case into the storybook lane boat scenes. Not a lot, but you'd be able to see something. Uh, and as, and also you'd be able to look out over parts of Fantasyland. So it operated providing family-friendly thrill and an environment uh, that we couldn't get anywhere else. And it, it does work because people always wave from Casey Jr. to people in the canal boats down, down below and vice versa. Like we're all guilty of it, I think. Guilty, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's also a good example of, you know, Casey Jr. comes is a minor character in a, you know, in the movie Dumbo. And Dumbo came out, what, 50 years ago or more? And it was, a, I think, a less than an hour and a half film. And Casey appeared Hall of Twice in the movie. And so you really can't depend on the guest knowing that movie or knowing the character. So you have to create something, design something which is great on its own merits. So I would question how many people who ride Casey Jr. had ever seen the Dumbo movie. I can't help but thinking back when we're talking about the Pedro Contefe and Casey Jr. of the same sort of setup at Disneyland in Anaheim. Was that playing on your mind when you were creating that area at the park? Uh, yes, but it, I wanted to do it better, frankly. I mean, working with working for Tony Baxter was one of the great joys of my life. Uh, and he's an old, old familiar hand of Anaheim. In fact, everyone on the Euro Disneyland team really cut their teeth on Anaheim, uh, either working in the park in some capacity or having grown up in the park. And so you working and going on the project to create Euro Disneyland was how could we do Disneyland, but better? How could we make it better than what we've done before? So I think if you look at the park, Anaheim has a Space Mountain and you know Paris has a Discovery Mountain slash Space Mountain. Uh, they have a they both have pirates, they both have uh, a haunted mansion, but in each case, the Paris version always tried to be better than the Anaheim. Keep all the things you loved about Anaheim, but make them a little bit better, a little what we call plussing. And the area, the area is really fun. And and Casey, between the the boats moving and the train, it has so much kinetic and so much activity for such a a, a small little area at the back of Fantasyland. So um, yep, yeah, uh, I'm 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 I actually it, it, you're good that you bring this up because you remind me I've I've uncovered another stash of photographs of construction of that area that I'm going to start tweeting out on my tweet uh, twitter account at Great. jim Scholl. can't wait to see <laughs> um so another another big project that you've worked on much more recently was um the walt disney studios um and notably you've you've tweeted um about toy story playland uh, did you also work on the original project of walt disney studio uh yes i did so on that one I was brought in by a good friend, Paul Osterhout, uh, and he and I were walking to lunch one day, and Glenn Dellick said, do you have any 
free time. And then I spent the next five years working on the park um, and immediately started working on the master. And that led to doing Toon Studio, which was the first major expansion. Then on to doing uh, concurrently, I was working on Ratatouille and what became Toy Story Playland. And then came back and worked on the Marvel campus recently, which is now currently under construction. Right. So I've I've spent a lot of time in that Euro Disney, uh, the second game. Working on Two Studio, for example, what was the uh, the atmosphere and the creative design? Because you know it's no, I think we all know that the Walt Disney Studios was maybe originally designed to be grander uh and you know budget constraints or even even from the start budget constraints have been sort of like a big element for that park was it difficult to create um something interesting and fun on sort of like maybe tougher budget constraints than disneyland park it was i mean if you have all the money and time in the world it's still tough because you're always being asked to make choices in some ways the second gate was easier because you knew up front that you had to make some severe choices. I'm disappointed by the end product because I think they cut it too much. And I think that's something that was of a time in the Disney management where they tried to not spend as much money as they had in the past. And the result was an inferior product that hurt the brand. Uh, Luckily, the company realized that's not the way to succeed. And so you've seen in, well, you've seen in California Adventure in Anaheim, the addition of Pandora, excuse me, the addition of Pandora and Animal Kingdom and other attractions in Florida where the park management and corporate management has decided to invest intelligently and strategically to make the product worthy of the Disney name. that's a long-winded answer to your question, which is pretty, pretty simple. And and hopefully, we we're hoping all of us Paris fans, and I think Disney fans <laughs> in general, that the major expansion, looking beyond, uh, you know, the back of the park with the lake and Frozen Land and and a and a third land, um, we're hoping that this is also the way that they're going to proceed. I know, obviously, you probably can't tell us anything. <laughs> uh, well, the passion the passion is to bring that park up to the same level as the first gate. And as you rightly said, and it's been publicly announced, is there's a major expansion underway right now with the addition of the Marvel campus. And very shortly, the Cars uh, road trip is going to be opening, which is a repurposing of the old tram tour. Uh, And then the announced Arendelle attraction uh, land and the lagoon and other future expansion pads. So the it's getting the it's I think it's getting better over there. And I see Mm -hmm. light at the end of the tunnel. I think we all do. Actually, I think we're all very excited about that. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think by uh, it feels like the Ratatouille area was such a higher detail and higher storytelling and higher budget than what had been done previously for that park. Um, do you think it was too late? It, sometimes it, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful space, mm. uh, but do you think it was too small, too little, too late? And that's why now we're having this much bigger expansion, which is really what the park needs. 
I think that, you know, you have to convince management when the park originally, Second Gate originally opened, I think people were disappointed by the reception of the, to the park by their guests. And then with the addition of Toon Studio, that convinced people that it, areas could be improved because we took what had been the animation courtyard, uh, added the figures on the sorcerer's hat, added the sorcerer Mickey to create a gateway mm-hmm. uh, and other attractions there. The cars, first cars ride was added there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first spinning coaster was added there for crush and a formal meet and greet. And it didn't solve all the problems, but it did convince the management that it was worth pursuing further investments. And that led in turn to Toy Story Playland and to Ratatouille. And Ratatouille really was theming an environment was comparable to what was in First Gate. And that was intentional to say, this is the standard moving forward. You can't go back from the theming and standard of Ratatouille. I think that, that's such a pleasant place to be as well. They're doing sort of food festivals and things like that there now. And it's it's such a nice place to be able to spend 20, 30 minutes. Now we've got the food festivals that happen there. I'm just... Question, did they ever open, when the restaurant was designed, there was a large exterior patio. So in good weather, we could open the doors and people could dine outside. But I've never seen that space be used for dining. Do you know, either of you know if it has been used for dining? So... It has it hasn't been used for full dining, but in I think the past two or three years they opened up service on the terrace for drinks and snacks from Bistro. So they yeah, do they, have, they took the dessert menu, didn't they? They have a dessert menu and they serve drinks just uh, outside the entrance, uh, just in front of the entrance of Bistro. Yeah, mm, that's that's great to hear. Because every restaurant in Paris, when the weather is good, the doors fly open and people dine outside. Absolutely. And this this restaurant was not that way. And they're starting to do first. that in, um, I mean, just to take it back to the, the other park for a second. Victoria's is doing that a lot more now as well. That's, um, that's like a table service bar outside now. Yeah. Um, which is nice. So you can have a little cocktail or glass of wine, a dessert, a waffle out on They've the really hub started actually in the last few years to look at those outside spaces and see what they can do with them and i i, I think they they're always busy so yeah that's, that's good and i think it's important because if you have outdoor spaces they should be active you know if, if i see if i walk by a cafe and i see diners and they have a beverage or a snack that intrigues me that makes me want to stop and go inside and investigate uh having everything inside closed boxes really doesn't pull me into that environment yeah and as you said europeans are not afraid to sit outside even when it's cold so (laughs) they should definitely (laughs) go for it (laughs) well that's happened in california now but in a different way due to covid our restaurants have been closed for indoor dining as results of our streets the city i live in they've closed the roadways and claim one lane of traffic for outdoor dining and as a result now, our city council is debating closing permanently those lanes to permanently make them outdoor dining because we found, they found that, you know, people wanted to be outside. If you have good weather, you know, undercover, you know, they'd rather eat outside where it's more interesting. You could see light, feel the wind, have a beverage, chat, as opposed to being inside of a box. 
Yeah, so maybe know. maybe good is coming from COVID. Yeah, <laughs> and and plus the Remy is is really as you said the perfect place. They even have some music, uh, sometimes musicians that come in, and they even have like um, some dancing. Do you remember Jeff? They had they, they had like a couple they, of dancers. They sometimes have the um they have somebody taking portraits sometimes, don't they? Drawing the portraits. Oh, yeah. They do that as well. Yeah. So yeah, well, it's been it's been nice I'm, to see. I, I'm selfishly interested in about dining. I have a thing about it. Uh, when I was the creative director for the redo of Paradise Pier at California Adventure, there was an old restaurant that I got to remodel, uh, and it was at the back of the park. And I created a bandstand for music and entertainment, and then it was all covered condition, uh, covered non-conditioned space. So you were under an awning or under trees, and there was a little place you'd go inside to get your meal and your beverage, and then go outside and sit next to the parade route. Uh, you could look at rides, you could look at people milling around, you could listen to music, uh, and it made it a really in, a great space to linger and stay. I, yeah, I think I, one thing, I think one thing about a Disney park that we sometimes forget is there are lots of people who do not go to the parks to ride things. They don't want to be on the biggest coaster. They want to go to hang out and to spend time with family and friends. I mean, you. I'm going to talk for you, Jeff, but I think you're talking to those people as, you know, as a, as fans yeah, who go yeah, to the parks, fans who go to the parks quite a few times a year. Um, we've done the attraction and we love them. And I think we all write them from time to time, but mostly we go to meet friends. We go to have a snack. We go to walk around and we go just to be transported somewhere else um, without necessarily always writing the attraction. So hey, I do remember coming back for some weekends and you talk to other people and I say, oh, did you do all the rides? And I might have done one. <laughs> You're like, I've done, I've done riverboat like landing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, talking about, you know, outdoor spaces and, and sort of immersive spaces, one of the, uh, the big project that you've worked on was Toy Story Playland in Paris, which I think was the first of its kind. Um, what was the... Um, well, we know the we know the idea is obviously to be sort of shrunk to the size of a toy, but what was the creative process for that land, and and how did you pick the attractions, and how did you choose which toys basically were could become attractions for the land? Uh, well, I I had a long relationship with Tom Fitzgerald, so he asked me into his office one day. I had to pay for my own sandwich, but he asked me to a lunch meeting to think about how could we add a small mini land or family attractions to the studio park. So I thought about that and came back two days later and pitched two ideas. <clears throat> One was uh, Syndrome's Island, which was based on the Incredibles movie. And the other one I called Andy's Backyard. And Andy's Backyard evolved into Toy Story Playland. But the idea was that Andy the boy one day was in his yard and he was playing with all of his toys. And he was playing and playing and playing until his mother said, hey, come in for lunch. And so he'd go inside to his mother's house to have tomato soup and a cheese sandwich and leave the toys outside the yard. Now, magically, because of the Toy Story toys, they are alive. And as you enter that land, his backyard, you're magically shrunk to the size of a toy. And the toys look at you and treat you as another do toy. And then you get to play in that world. Uh, and the other thing I pitched then was that everyone is or has played with toys and everyone is or has played with 
is a child. So everyone is or has been a child. Everyone is or has played with toys. And immediately that was something that people could understand. The second thing is I reminded them that if we held a schedule that we would be opening this land six months after the Toy Story 3 movie opened. And again, people kind of really perked up their ears on that one. So we got a, we got immediately greenlit, approved, and it was two and a half years to three years until we finally finished that land. But it was a very short, very rushed schedule, and everyone on the team worked very hard. As far as the toys, well, really went back to the movie and looked at the toys there and looked for matches of the toys in the movie and how they might match to different rides. And there were three levels of rides. One was, well, I'll call them the mama, papa, and baby bear rides. So you wanted something for the baby bear level, which anyone could ride. And the Slinky Dog Spin really kind of fit that. And that was based on an old ride called the Cuddle Up. I don't know what the European equivalent would be, but that's an old ride dating back nearly 100 years. The second one was the Mama Bear, which was kind of a mild thrill. And I love parachute jumps and observation towers. And so that one really matched very nicely to the Green Army men at Army Base. Mm. And then the Papa Bear, which was your thrill ride, that really married very nicely to the RC Racer, which was the ride again, or the toy again that was in the movie. And that became our launch coaster, which is the first one Disney's ever done, uh, which proved successful because we've done two more in other parks since then. But what that meant was uh, that the other toys that were also in the movie that got to become fill-in and everything was placed in the land as if Andy had played with them uh, and was going to come back to play with them again. And you could see signs of Andy, such as his footprints in the dirt. Mm. Um, and everything in the land is scaled to Andy. So the ball, the Luxo Junior ball in the center of the land, could be is scaled properly. Uh, and the same thing, well, the same thing with the, the plane, the parachute jump, the Lincoln logs, and the other objects. Everything scales to Andy. And even even to the, the the barricade details, there are I don't know the name of that toy, but there are some of like those plastic toy that you assemble. Oh, the connects. The connects is that what they are? Oh yeah, <laughs> they're called connects. Right. Again, some of the names in the states are different from the state uh, from the European names. Oh, yeah. I, in fact, I'd go into meetings, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd hold up a toy and say, "Well, this is a Tinker toy, for example," and people would say, "Well, we don't know what a Tinker toy is." We and then finally, after five minutes, they sorted out. Oh no, that's something else. We call that. I don't know. I'll make this up. We call that Fred. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it would take time to figure out well, what does that mean. What's the equivalent? Everyone plays with the same toys. They're just called different by different names. Yeah, yeah. and there's some really cool details in the the RC racer. <coughs> I really enjoy. So the the I don't know how to explain what they are. Um, that like the. The car tracks and you can see that they've been joined together as you go to the main loading building i think that's a really really fun way of playing with the toys yeah that was that was fun also we we built those um they're all concrete and they're cast concrete with steel in beds for the well the um the electrical pickup and we did those off-site 
and they actually do fit together because we brought them into separate pieces, which proved a lot harder than if we just poured it all in place and scored the lines. But it looks more authentic, more sincere to do it the way we did. And we had to do a lot of survey work because, as you know, we built in the Bois, and it's, the, it's a big wooded area. And so we surveyed all the trees and then laid out the slot car track to avoid the trees and to protect them. And we had to, as, a, as for that reason, every single slot car piece was brought in on a crane and then very so carefully put into place one after another, just like a real toy set. So we we built we built the toy. We just built it at larger scale. Interesting. <laughs> I find it so interesting to kind of explain how it was slotted together like a toy set. It was. RC, RC Racer is a lot more thrilling than people think as well. <laughs> Can I just yeah, say? I, re- I really enjoy it. I think it's great. Yeah, it, it kind of was interesting because it technically we're never supposed to take people to negative gravity in a Disney ride. I've been told that over and over again. And so technically RC is not supposed to be zero G, but I know from experience that it is zero G <laughs> having lost objects <laughs> in the pockets. So beware, don't don't take oh, yeah. objects that you don't want to lose, <laughs> like your phone. And you say you love Observation Tower, and I think Parachute Drop is going to be um, such a, a hit with fans when uh, they start building the lake and the frozen land, because it is if you get, if you get the right parachute, it is looking directly at the construction zone. And I think Jeff, you were talking about how when Ratatouille was being built, you were going on parachute to see the Ratatouille side of things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Constantly. And I think a lot of people, it's the same with every fan, right? It's always, I want to take that row because I can see. <laughs> um, Did you ever have a time when you're at the top of the tower when it broke or stalled out up there? Uh, at the top of the tower? Never. No, I haven't either. But that would be nice because you could take all the photos you want and have a nice, good look. <laughs> you know, sometimes I so, find parachute drop more thrilling than Tower of Terror because you're outside. You've got the real gust of wind as you go down. If it's if it's a windy day, it's a real heavy thrill, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the next um, the next phase for Walt Disney Studio Park is you know, without obviously revealing anything that you can't reveal um, is Avengers Campus, and it was supposed to open. Uh, this year and now it's going to open next year um but um it's really coming together we've done we've done some photos with anything we could find mm-hmm. airplanes and you know paramagic and everything um and it looks like it's really coming together and we've seen a bit of detail from anaheim which is obviously not exactly the same design but it looks like a very immersive land is it going to have is it going to be such a um, sort of like a 360 experience with lots to see, lots to do, lots of activity? Absolutely. As I, as I said earlier, Ratatouille set the, the bar going forward and Avengers Campus can, uh, continues that. The idea is that it is the Avengers. Well, the Avengers have set up a new campus, a new headquarters, but in Europe. So you're definitely in Europe but you're definitely in the world of the Avengers and you are in a a totally immersive environment uh, with restaurants, dining, retail, the two new rides. uh, And I'm going to call them new rides because there's the old rock and roller coaster, which is now going to be an Avengers Iron Man ride. And then the uh, Spider-Man ride, which is a clone or duplicate of the one that's being built in Anaheim. 
I think we're all very much looking at, um, forward to this. And then they've also released, you know, the name of the restaurants. There's going to be the PIM restaurant and all sorts of, uh, sort of innovative new things to discover. So, yeah, it was, it was fun working on that project because again, uh, one of my projects, I, I was the creative director for rock and roller coaster. The first one was in Florida and the second was there in Paris. And I was always a little disappointed by the one in Paris. So having an opportunity to return to the scene of the crime, uh, to change it and to plus it and to bring it up to standard was very, very, uh, you know, a good day for me. Let me put it that way. And and that that entrance um, looks amazing. We're, yeah. We can't wait to see it. Uh, we've, we've seen only the you know official concept art that was released, but this sort of like circular, it looks glowy, metallic entrance is such a departure from obviously Rock and Roller Coaster, which was quite boxy and had such this like 90s vibe with the big CD and everything. It's going to be such a such a change for for the attraction. Yeah, you want to do something when you design, you want to do something that's class. You want to do something new because people love new, but at the same time, you want to have something that's very classic or has a callback. And so what you're seeing in the architecture as it emerges on the Avengers building is something that's really going to be spectacular and i think it's going to surprise people and uh just when you do a before and after photograph of what it looked like as rock and roller coaster versus the iron man ride it's going to be very surprising how big a change it's going to be so i'm i hope that you won't be disappointed i'm very excited yeah, I'm very excited. <laughs> and you know, I I didn't realize that you worked on Rock and Roller Coaster in Paris. Um, and now I have a question about that. The the story is obviously different. So in in California, in California, in Florida, uh, you're uh, late for a gig and you take a limo through Hollywood. In Paris, you're sort of writing the music. I think that's how I would describe the um, you sort of a. Yeah, and you, the the band is designing the coaster, and you're sort of writing the the music. What what was the what was the background to like? What was the story change? Do you think the the European audience was not going to react well to the same Hollywood story? Uh, you know, I think that's a good example of our not our being too timid, uh, because I think we were too timid as far as the European audience that we didn't trust them that. You know, in in Florida, you're being asked to go to a, a concert and you're going, you're walking through the queue, through some dark alleys, you get into a limo. There's a sense of danger and risk in Anaheim or in Florida, excuse me, in Florida that's not in Paris. And I think we didn't trust our guests in Paris to come along with us to a place that's a little more risky and a little more dangerous uh, because... You know, if you go back and you look at the video <clears throat> for Anaheim, for Paris, it is very, as you say, very straightforward. It's uh, Aerosmith, Aerosmith built a ride and, hey, you come on ride a ride, which doesn't make a lot of sense. As opposed to, hey, Aerosmith says we are going to be on a concert, but we're not going to have our concert unless our biggest fans, which are you, the guests, come with us. And that's the that's the leverage they use against their agent to get her to arrange to get you a stretch limo so that you could go to the concert, right. which 
you know, along the way you go through three inversions and 56 miles an hour, but never mind about that. <laughs> but that was the thin thread that we hung the ride on, the ride story, and it worked. In Paris, we didn't do that. And I think that was, a, I was disappointed. I mean, it's, it's, it's still a fun and thrilling ride with all the lights and everything, but it's true that I, I, um, I think I wrote it in Florida first because at the time I was living in the US and I was there when the year that it opened and I didn't realize when I went to Paris and I was like, wait, where, where are the stretch limos? Um, but yeah. yeah. Again, I think you're going to be very surprised and, and impressed by what we're doing in Avengers Camp with that ride. It's, it's going to be very different. Was it a bittersweet moment to see it go? Because obviously you know what's coming, but you still worked on the original. How, how that kind of a, a moment? Many no, fans, many fans want... were sad to see the rock and roll coaster go. It was, it was quite of a cult attraction for many people in Paris oh. as well. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it. People love to hold on to things. Um, you know, you know. Well, Walt said Disneyland will never be finished. And I take that one to heart that things always need to be, things need to evolve. The question is, are you changing something for the better? If you're not, then don't do it. And, you know, we are changing something for the better with the change in Rock and Roller Coaster Paris. It, it is going to be better, I'm convinced. And they gave, they gave both that and Armageddon actually a really nice sign off. So I don't know if you know, for Rock and Roller Coaster, they gave the little magazine and for Armageddon, they held an annual pass holders night i think wasn't it yeah and you could get a little piece of lava uh they gave everyone at the party a little piece of lava that was um sort of in the uh in the front of the attraction where the rover was yeah huh. and everyone Did got a little lava, piece <laughs> that's a wonderful that's a wonderful send-off for the for the attraction yeah did the rover rover end up anywhere i think it is still backstage um, we could see it from the from the air. Uh, it, it's parked back there with the um, with the cars from Moto Action, with uh, with the trams for now and all that. I think and and the cars um, the cars from the tram tour as well are back there. I think everything got moved in a in a parking lot backstage. With the new cars road trip, they don't fit in story. So I question what will they do? Yeah. Um, well, maybe the the archives will just uh, have a chip back to the US, or I don't know. <laughs> and talking about changing for the better, do you feel? I know it's kind of a loaded question, but I don't. But do you do you feel like the the retheme of the tram tours of tram tour to the cars attraction is this a change for the better, or is it just something, or is it considered something completely different that we that we can't compare to the tram tour? It's a different. It's a different animal. The, the tram tour was a ride vehicle that took you backstage in a studio. But over the years, that became less and less relevant as things were chipped away. When you yeah. lost Rain of Fire, that really did doom the tram tour, in my opinion. Uh, but the biggest piece and most successful piece of tram tour is Catastrophe Canyon. And so that was integrated in a very strong way and it became an essential component of the new cars road trip <clears throat> and as a result i think you know in story now there's a reason for catastrophe canyon and there's a reason to go on the tram but it's it's not about getting on a bus going backstage to a non-existent studio moreover i think that 
decades ago, you'd go to a studio to go find out how movies are made. And what we've discovered is movies are now made on a, on a laptop or a computer. And so the magic is really on everyone's desktop or on their phones. It's not going to a soundstage or a back lot to find out how a film or TV show or music video was made. Mm. So the reasons to go to a studio park aren't the same. And you see that, well, you see that in competitors like Universal. There's a park in in Europe that doesn't take you how tell you how to make a movie. It takes you on a movie. You get to ride the movie. You get to be in the environment. You get to be in the world. And I think that's more what people ex- expect to find. If you want to find out how movies are made, you can go to YouTube. You can go go on one of many, many avenues to find out the technical aspect of how that film was made. But you don't need to go to a studio theme park to do that. Yeah, it's true. I I completely agree. I think it's good that Disney realized and is switching the narrative for that park because mm-hmm. um as you said like it, there's a certain nostalgia there was maybe uh, an interest at a certain point in the 80s and the 90s about how, how do you make movies how do you make tv but now when you look at shows like the mandalorian where basically the whole background is a floor-to-ceiling enormous led screen that's adaptable and everything like the 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 movies are not made the same way that they used to. There's no more giant sets. There's no more all those things to see. So, so hopefully the new narrative would yeah. be would be a, a more um, productive way to 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 use the land to make new attractions. Now, and there's also not the glamour of going into an old studio soundstage or sound or studio lot. Um, for example, right now I live in Newhall, California, which is a community north of LA. And there are multiple sound stages, but if you look at the outside, the studios look like simple tilt-up concrete warehouses. Yeah. So there's nothing romantic or nostalgic about going past an industrial park. Yeah, you know, whereas, you know, there was if you went to the old MGM or Universal or Disney lot, there was history, nostalgia, and romance in those spaces, but yeah. not so much in it today. I think you still see that a little bit. So I remember doing the, I did the Universal Hollywood studio tour. And yes, you have some of the physical sets still, but the first, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes of it, you're just going between sound stages and they're describing what's going on inside. And you're sort of on that tram going, this is a little bit boring. A good, if you're ever back in Los Angeles, I'd strongly recommend going to the Warner Brothers lot. They also do a tram tour, but Mm. the trams are little parkours and you're limited to eight people per little bus and a majority of the tram tour is physically walking through buildings and sound stages and shops so it's uh, it's a much different environment it's a slower pace and it's it's a much better example and education on how movies are made i will make a note and I feel like talking about the the romantic side of Hollywood, we're, we'll still have at Walt Disney Studios the front lots, which is with Studio One, I mean, to some extent, the, the architecture of Studio One and the architecture of front lot, which is reminiscent of an, a classic movie studio, which is staying, and they just they just repaved the entire area. They, they're sort of investing in that and renovating that area, and that 
I feel like that's gonna be that's gonna stay sort of the the iconic entrance to the park would you be like sort of transported through an old movie studios into the movies. And it and it's a good palate cleanser. If you walk into a park mm-hmm. from the outside world, you you need a palate cleanser to transition, decompress from the real world into the fantasy mm-hmm. world you're now entering. And the plaza and soundstage one give you that. I had I had a few other questions about you know Imagineering and about attraction that that was that I was wondering. Um, there's there's a lot of um, discussion among, amongst fan of you know what is better an an IP attraction or an original concept attraction. Do you think Disney can still pull off an attraction that is not based on one of their movies or or have we now completely transitioned in in the world where you know every attraction is to have at least some tie off tie in to to one of the IPs? Well, I think that in Hong Kong Disneyland Mystic Manor, which is an original story, proved that you can do something that's incredibly popular and very successful that is not tied to anything that came prior. So, yes, you can. It's a short answer. There's always room for new ideas. Uh, a good example I'll give you is the Mr. Toad Wild Ride coaster that's from my childhood Mm. i did not know that there was a movie called mr toad i went to anaheim i rode on this dark ride that had a little bit of thrill uh and i thought that was the best ride yeah and then years later found out oh by the way there's a movie you can't assume just because you build something based on an ip that people know what the ip is the ride has to be designed as if people have never heard of it, which is something that was a prime motivator in Shanghai Disneyland, where the assumption was nobody had ever seen a Disney movie or television show in their entire lives. Um, And we have to assume that today, even in Paris. Is this something also you think that was applied to Pandora, where it, it is not the strongest IP? And if you've never seen the movies, you can still very much enjoy walking to this magnificent land and enjoy a ride on the banshee even if you don't really know what a banshee is or how that ties into the whole movie yeah it's it's objective it is i'm speaking now not as an imagineer but as a as a as a person um i didn't particularly care for the movie pandora i didn't think it was or avatar i'm sorry avatar i didn't think it was the worst movie but i didn't think it was something to change my life however when i rode flight of passage uh, I went back in Glendale and sought out Joe Rohde to thank him personally because it moved me as an attraction, as a story, irregardless of the fact that it had been a movie that I really didn't care much for. So you have to do a good job. And uh, in that case, they did it. Uh, and Joe and his team hit it out of the ballpark. It was a exceptional, exceptional story or spin on a story that the movie wasn't that great. Now, they are. They have announced there are going to be two more, I believe, Avatar movies, and maybe yeah. they'll be great. Maybe they'll be successful, but who knows? Uh, you can't assume that they're going to be anything. So you have to move forward with what you have and hope for the best. Yeah, I guess. I guess great storytelling works regardless. When it's a great story and a great attraction, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. The the guests have to emotionally connect to the concept, regardless of whether they saw the movie or not. 
I think that is that is the end of my questions. Uh, <laughs> this uh, this was super interesting. Thank you so well, much. Thank Jim. you, Th thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. Um, I really enjoy this. You know, you can reach out to me on Twitter. Yeah, Jim Scholl on Twitter, and uh, I'm going to continue to post and be part of the community. And as I said at the top of the broadcast, that I really am a fan first, and that what motivated to become an Imagineer. So I want to continue to contribute where I can. And you guys are definitely carrying the torch. So thank you for letting me be part of your podcast today. Oh, well, thank you. And and you know, I think uh, I think I speak for all the. Uh, all the fans and everyone enjoying Disneyland Paris that we're so grateful for the work that you've done and, and, and so much care and imagination and creativity and storytelling has gone into all parks because I think, uh, you know, we have, we have some of the best lands to walk through every time we visit and it's all thanks to you and, and, and the Imagineering teams that, that worked on the resort. So we're all very grateful for your work. Well, thank you very much and have and, a good day. Stay uh, warm. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you for being on the show. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Thank you.